This is True News, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. I'm Doc Burkhart. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. The big scare out of Washington came recently as Congress and European allies were warned of the emergence of Russian technology that threatens to compromise the technology of the West through a novel space-based nuclear weapon. Now, this development could critically damage civilian, military, and surveillance communications and even more. Despite the significant risk posed, the sources in the know say that the U.S. currently lacks the means to defend against such an assault. That alarming intelligence was highlighted by Representative Mike Turner's statement on a serious national security threat. So you see that headline from the New York Times last week. Now, speculation has run rampant on what this new space-based weapon could possibly be. Politicians and security officials have been tight-lipped about the latest capabilities of Russia's new weapon. We have this from Reuters as well. One very real possibility is that Russia may have already launched an EMP-capable weapon into space and that Vladimir Putin may have already warned the West that he's willing to use it. The second anniversary of the Ukraine conflict is just days away. Will Russia deliver a knockout blow to the U.S. to mark the occasion? And that is why you need to be prepared. American Reserves right now is offering a 15% discount on all products, such as water filters, generators, get-up-and-go bags, shortwave radios, and, of course, the essential food items are all things you will need to get you through the next disaster, which may very well be an EMP. You can go to AmericanReserves.com and order today using the checkout code TRUENEWS for that 15% discount. That code guarantees your discount on the essentials that you need from American Reserves. So do not delay. Order today. Now, True News has been talking about the real possibility of an EMP attack on North America for decades. And some of the most fascinating interviews that Rick has engaged in during our history have been on this very topic. Today, we will share with you two very powerful interviews by Rick that are as pertinent today as when they first aired. Now, later in the program, Rick Wiles is joined by former CIA Director James Woolsey and Dr. Peter Vincent Pry with a chilling and in-depth conversation about the very real threat of an electromagnetic pulse attack on North America. First off, though, we have a very fascinating conversation between Rick and former U.S. congressman and scientist Roscoe Bartlett talking about his serious concern that America will be devastated by such an EMP attack and why Congressman Bartlett built a home in West Virginia that was totally off the grid. Here is that interview by Rick Wiles from January 2015. Well, no other American citizen, in my opinion, has done more to warn the American people of the dangers posed by a surprise EMP attack than my guest today. Dr. Roscoe Bartlett is a scientist and a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He was my congressman when I lived in western Maryland. Today, he and Mrs. Bartlett live off the grid in the mountains of West Virginia in preparation for the possibility of an EMP or cyber attack on America's infrastructure. Dr. Bartlett, it's good to speak to you again. How are you today? I'm just fine, thank you. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, let's talk about uh, the dangers of EMP. I have talked about it on this radio program since 1999. You are the only 
political leader in this country that I have witnessed over these 16, 17 years who has consistently talked about the very real possibility of an EMP attack. Um, first of all, for, for listeners who don't know anything about it, uh, give us a, a, a layman's description of what an EMP attack is and what it can do to us. Well, an EMP attack, a nuclear EMP attack, is produced by detonating a nuclear weapon above the atmosphere. Any nuclear weapon will do, but an enhanced EMP weapon will produce a whole lot more impact than an ordinary nuclear bomb. But an ordinary nuclear bomb will do just fine. It produces a flow of Compton electrons. It has three different phases in it. Uh, E1 is like nothing else we have ever seen. Its penetration is very rapid. None of your surge protectors will protect you from it. It's through the surge protector in nanoseconds. E2 is very much like lightning. And then there's an E3, which is kind of a new thing also. Uh, E3 is very long wavelengths. It will couple, couple with deeply buried wires. It will couple with railroad tracks. So here you have a, 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 the most hugely asymmetric weapon that you can imagine. I would be enormously surprised if North Korea launched one of these from their, uh, from their soil, because we would certainly see it by our, from our satellites, and, then if, and within about a half hour they would be vaporized. So they're not going to do that. doesn't mean that North Korea is not going to attack us. Uh, they could attack us easily by handing this bomb off to some uh, uh, non-state entity. All they need is a tramp steamer and a way of launching it, a scud launcher for which they can buy for about $100,000. That won't take down the whole United States. It would take down the whole uh, mid-Atlantic uh, uh, area from Boston to Norfolk and west to Pittsburgh. It would be a wound maybe 10 times the size of Katrina. I don't know whether that would be a mortal wound or not. North Korea launches satellites. All you have to do is to detonate a bomb in a satellite about 300 miles above our country over Iowa or Nebraska, and it blankets the whole country. And, you know, now this is uh, maybe an if, but there is something that's, that, that is an absolute certainty, and that's a when, and that's a, a, a solar burst, which will produce not all of the effect of a nuclear EMP, but enough of them that it will bring the grid down. Congressman, uh, what would be the damage of an EMP attack over the USA? Well, if it was the whole of uh, uh, of the United States, all except, of course, Alaska and, and, and Hawaii. Uh, wow. You know, many people who have looked at this believe that uh, the grid would be down for a year or more. That's because what this will do is cause surges of electricity, which will blow our big transformers. And uh, we don't have any of those We in spares or almost not in spares. We don't make them. You have to go to someplace like South Korea or Germany, and they'll make one for you on order a year, year and a half or so to get it made. You know, you really can't hold your breath for a, a year or a year and a half. Many experts looking at this believe that maybe as many as, uh, as much as 90% of our population will die. Of course, it will be much worse in the cities than it is outside the cities. But can you imagine a world in which you have no electricity? We have about 17 critical infrastructures, and not one of them work without electricity. The whole banking system fails. All communications fail. You won't have any good potable water to drink. The sewage won't be handled. Wow, it, it's, you know, we're thrown back uh, 100 years uh, into this uh, a world like we knew 100 years ago. One of the world's authorities on this is a Dr. Lowell Wood from Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And Lowell says it's a giant continental time machine that will throw us back a hundred years in time. I said, but Lowell, the technology of a hundred years ago won't support our current technology. He says, yes, I know. The population will shrink until it can be supported by the technology. You know, this is such a devastating possibility. There's an old adage that says if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. And of course,
corollary to that, many people think if it's just awful, awful, it can't happen. And so I think many people just dismiss this. Gosh, that's so bad, it just won't happen, will it? But it's the most asymmetric weapon you can think of. I think the odds of it have, well, Lloyds of London. Lloyds of London says that a solar uh, EMP attack, that's not an attack, a solar EMP impact on our country has a higher probability than the probability of a hurricane, major hurricane hitting Miami. That's pretty high, isn't it? Dr. Bartlett, this 90% population reduction, is, it's a stunning number. And I, and I want our listeners to understand that it's not the EMP blast that will take out 90% of the population. It's, no, we're totally immune to it. It won't hurt you right. at all. Unless you have a pacemaker or something like that, then you'd be affected by it. But if you don't have any of those microelectronic things in your body, you won't be affected at all. You will never know it happened. Unless you're looking and see the burst, you would never know it happened. But, you know, your car may not run. There's some dispute about whether all cars will not run or not. But it certainly won't run after it runs out of gasoline. And uh, it was a big surprise to me. We had a big blackout here for several days, a week or so. And the service stations didn't have a generator. They couldn't pump gas. So the, so the death rate of 90% of the population within one year comes from the aftermath, the, the, the destruction of, of our civilization, the lack of food, there's no transportation to, to move food products, uh, no medical care, uh, no electricity for, for heating, uh, no delivery of, of uh, oil and natural gas for uh, heating homes and such. And so we're looking at the possibility of 90% of the American people being killed off within 12 months of an EMP blast. That is a Mad Max movie nightmare. It is indeed, and it's just so bad that many people just refuse to think about it. It's too horrible. That that can't happen. But, you know, it, it certainly could happen. Uh, there are, uh, I have no idea how many, but there are tens of thousands out there of radical Islamists who hate us, would kill us if they could. And, you know, all you need, as I said, is a tramp steamer. And, by the way, I think this, this launch will come from the ocean. It will not come from anybody's soil. Now we're putting those silly uh, missile defense things in, in, in Alaska. Nobody's coming over the pole. The only two countries that would ever come over the pole are Russia and China when they have more weapons. And Russia has so many weapons that the few we could take out with our defense at the pole would not matter at all. Nobody else is coming over the pole. Nobody else is going to launch from their, from their own uh, soil. And we have essentially no protection against launches up and down our coast in the Gulf of Mexico or, or, or either one of our coasts. West Coast, some protection, but none on the East Coast, which is where it's more likely to come from. Congressman, uh, several years ago, when the local CBS television affiliate um, uh, crew in a helicopter f- videoed a mysterious rocket launch out of the ocean off the coast of California, uh, my immediate response was this was a test a a a, a dry run for an uh, an emp attack what were your thoughts when that happened well the same thoughts as yours i remember that very well and it was a great mystery what the heck was it and uh, you know other news of uh, uh, headlined and uh, we kind of forgot about that but you know I, I do remember it well you know the very next day there was a photograph in the i believe the new york post or the new york daily news what appeared to be a missile going, you know, through the skyline of New York City. And, and the headline said, you know, uh, you know, is this a missile? And then shortly after that, uh, a True News listener contacted me from t- uh, South Texas. Uh, this man and his wife were at, uh, they were on South Padre Island, and uh, just sitting there, you know, in, in the sun, enjoying the day. And they witnessed... A- a rocket come up out of the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and they videoed it with their cell phone, took it to the local naval station. They said, we have no idea what this is. My concern was, uh, 
was that within a matter of days, you had a West Coast, an East Coast, and a Gulf of Mexico launch of three different rockets. And um, to me, that looked like a one, two, three punch for a major EMP attack on this country. That is very possible. We, you know, we have known about this for a number of years now. We've done essentially nothing to protect ourselves. Uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to politically to do this. Right now, we're non-competitive in the world. We really can't produce products. You go to Walmart or someplace, and you have to look and look and look to find something that's not made in China. And if we were to increase the cost of producing things by making electricity more expensive, by protecting the grid, then we'd be even less competitive. So this is a, a situation in, in which, unless everybody does it, nobody is going to do it. Because if one uh, area tried to protect themselves, they would be then less competitive with other areas in the country. I'm certainly a no big government fan. You know, I believe in Thomas Jefferson's uh, ideology that the government which governs best is the government which governs least. But this is one place where the government needs to get involved because I said, unless everybody does it, nobody will do it. It just has to be edicted. You will protect the grid. We've not done that. I'm not sure we will do that. Dr. Bart- uh, Bartlett, how, which nations are currently capable of delivering an EMP attack against us? Oh, my goodness. I don't know whether Iran has a weapon or not, but if they don't, I'm sure North Korea will lend them one. And, you know, they have the disposition they could do it. North Korea has the disposition they could do it. And, you know, I don't know how many others, uh, but certainly those two. And they're not going to launch from their soil. We keep waiting until North Korea or Iran has a missile which will reach us. I have no idea why this silly logic. They're not going to launch from their soil. Uh, You know, uh, they may be uh, evil, but they are not idiots. And they know that if they launch from their soil that we would see it with our satellites. And as I said, with in 30 minutes, they would be vaporized if they did that. They're not going to do that. You know, they will strap a bomb on themselves, but it's always somebody else's kid. It's not the leader's kid that has a bomb strapped on him, is it? I don't think that they are suicidal in leadership in these countries. So I don't think the launch is going to come from the country. And why should it? You know, we have a much better chance of shooting it down if it comes that long distance. They can launch it from the ocean very easily. The North Atlantic shipping lane is so full of ships that it's impossible to keep track of everybody that's out there. Uh, Both Iran and North Korea have... Uh, submarines, and that, that's uh, that's that's a fact that few Americans are aware of. That those two countries have uh, military submarines in in their fleet, and so they could come right up to our coast undetected and and launch. And they don't even have to be right at the coast. I mean, they could be five hundred to a thousand miles away and launch uh, a missile. Or the other the other thing is the the Russian um um you know container shipping container missile launcher which that thing could be sitting in in one of our harbors. We don't even know it, that there's a missile launcher sitting on a ship. And that thing could be... It could be indeed. You know, you can't see the through the thinnest sheet of, of, of a canvas, a tarpaulin on the top of a ship. Uh, when you see a ship out there and it has some stuff on the deck and it's covered over the cannon, it could be crates of bananas or it could be a missile launcher. There, we have no technology which will tell us the difference between those two things, as far as I know. And I don't... Uh, coming from a submarine, they have to have some technology. Coming from a surface ship, they need essentially no technology that the simplest people can't have. And then they simply sink the ship, and there's no fingerprints on it. You know, either way, you know, we are extremely vulnerable. We can't protect ourselves against either one of those. But we can harden the grid, so it wouldn't matter if they did it. But we have not hardened the grid. There is, of course, only about three days' supply of food in the average city. As you're taking it off the shelf, they're putting it on the shelf. You can watch them do it. There's plenty of food in this country to feed everybody for a long time. But it's in big silos out in the Midwest. And without electricity, there will no way of getting it from the Midwest to New York City. If you want... If you wanted to take over the United States and possess the country, 
then an EMP attack uh, is the next best best thing to a neutron bomb attack because uh, the population is going to be eliminated within a year. And all you have to do is is wait until the, the people kill themselves off, and then you come in and you possess the land. All the buildings are there. There hasn't been any destruction to the infrastructure other than the electricity, um, but everything else would be sitting there for uh, as the spoils of war. Yeah, that is true. Uh, there, there may be some fires. We have no idea what E3 would do in our cities. There may be some fires there. There may be some losses as a result of fires in our cities. And, of course, there will be no, no fire company to help put out the fires, so we don't really know what – because we have no uh, real-life experience with, with that. The Soviets had more than we, but I don't think they had enough to know exactly what will happen uh, in our large cities with the, with the E3 effects from, the, from a nuclear blast. Dr. Bartlett, uh, during the years that you served in Congress – uh, what would you estimate the percentage of members of the House and Senate who have a a, uh, a strong awareness of the danger of an EMP attack? Oh, we're lucky if it's one percent. One percent of the U.S. Congress. That, 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 I, that, uh, nobody wants to think about it. When I was um, on the Armed Services Committee and I first brought this up. Two-thirds of the members of the Armed Services Committee never even heard of the EMP, and this is the Armed Services Committee. Uh, uh, Trent Franks is concerned about this in the Congress. I don't know anybody else who, who is uh, you know, really vocal on it in the Congress. I went to the floor probably half a dozen times. I set up the EMP Commission. It was my legislation to set up the EMP Commission, which functioned for, for eight years, I think, uh, chaired by Bill Graham, who was uh, Ronald Reagan's science advisor. A really august group of people who, who uh, did this for eight years for us. Uh, that's a very shocking and depressing uh, statement to, to, to know that 1% of the U.S. Congress has any awareness of, of one of the greatest dangers to the national security of this nation. Well, they may have some awareness of it, but they don't it, – it's really uh, – isn't important to them. They think that, it, that the probability is so remote that, you know, they don't, it's more important to get some salt out there so you can, get ice, so you can melt the ice on the roads next winter. Uh, there's an old adage, you know, the, the um, uh, urgent always takes priority over the important. And uh, even if it's in their mind that things are more urgent, this, this is not going to happen tomorrow, probably. It may not even happen next year. And there are some things that we really, really got to pay attention to tomorrow and next year. So one of the problems we have is what's called a tyranny of the urgent, which always takes precedence over the important. You can always do the important thing tomorrow. And as you know, tomorrow may never come. You know, Congressman Kurt Weldon was another uh, man who, he was indeed. who stood very strongly for the national defense of this nation and warned about uh Topics that few people wanted to discuss, like uh, nuclear suitcase bombs in this country. And I watched how the political establishment targeted him and defeated him for reelection. Then they went after you and they removed you. And and I knew that was a sad day when you were defeated. Uh, and I thought, dear Lord, here, here, you know, a, a political nobody has removed a congressman who is courageously warning this nation of the danger of an EMP attack. And it's, it's, it's very disheartening, Congressman, to see the, um, the attack on the men in Congress who are warning about threats to our national security. 
you know, they did it to me, of course, with gerrymandering. I had a, a very supportive Republican district, and they turned that into a pretty strong Democrat district. I had the most gerrymandered district in the country in terms of political movement. It was just so Democrat. And I was running, of course, in a, in a, in a Democrat year. Had it been this year, it might have been different, but I was running. It was two years ago, and it was a very Democrat year, and it was just impossible to hold the seat. Kurt Weldon lost, of course, because of, well, I think primarily because the, the uh, who was it, the IRS or somebody raided his daughter's yes. house just a few uh, weeks before the uh, before the election. FBI, I guess it was. They never charged her with anything, never said a word about it. They just raided her house. And that was the headlines in the press, of course. Losing Kurt was a huge uh, loss nationally. Uh, one last question before I, I, I let you go. You and Mrs. Bartlett have, have built a, a home in West Virginia uh, to... Yeah, we don't uh, currently live there. We could live there. We're off the grid. We bought it there 30 years ago. And uh, electricity is such a cheap slave that if you have it, uh, it takes extraordinary willpower not to use it, uh, you know, the grid. And I wasn't sure I had that kind of willpower. So I intentionally bought a place that was off the grid. So if I was going to have any electricity, I had to make it myself. It's just too huge a temptation. Oh, I'll use the grid now, and I'll prepare so that I can make do if I don't have the grid later. You may or may not do that. The probability is that you won't do it. So I intentionally bought some property where there was no electricity, where I couldn't get any electricity. So I had to make do on my own. It's been fun. One, uh, one more last question. What can our government to do right now to protect us? Oh, uh, mandate hardening of the grid. It's a pretty simple thing, and we know how to do it. It's going to be very difficult because we have a huge grid that's been cobbled together. It's not a national thing. It's a whole bunch of little regional things that are, that are bound together. It's all controlled by, by these SCADA units, and uh, many of those things they've manufactured don't even exist anymore. They're all gone, too, when that happens. You know, your traffic lights are controlled by that. Sewage treatment is controlled by that. Water treatment is controlled by that. There's an, a huge number of things out there that are microelectronics and a strong enough a nuclear burst, and they're all gone. All right. Well, my guest today, uh, former Maryland Congressman Dr. Roscoe Bartlett. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you taking time to be on True News today. Thank you, sir. Happy to be on. Thanks. That interview with uh, Representative Roscoe Bartlett was one interview that should make every American prepare for the very real possibility of a potential EMP attack on America. Now, just a reminder that American Reserves is offering a 15% discount on all products right now. That includes water filters, generators, your get-up-and-go bags, and, of course, those essential food items. All the things that you will need to get you through the next disaster, which very well could be an EMP. Go to AmericanReserves.com and order today using the checkout code TRUENEWS. That code guarantees your discount on the essentials from American Reserves. Here's True News viewer Jake to tell us more. I'm Jake, but my friends call me Musha. I'm a blacksmith, and I like to work with my hands. I watch True News, and it's apparent to me that we are in World War III, and the U.S. is very unstable. I have faith in God, but He expects us to use our brains and our hands to prepare for trouble times. There are two things we need, food and water. 
That's why I buy my supplies from AmericanReserves.com. American Reserves offers easy-to-prepare chicken and beef meals, pastas, soups, and vegetables that only need boiling water. You can purchase the world-famous British Burkefield gravity-fed water filters equipped with Dalton ceramic candles and other emergency supplies at AmericanReserves.com. My family's security is critical to me. Something big is coming. Procrastination could be costly. Act today before a crisis suddenly appears. Be ready. Be wise. Go to AmericanReserves.com. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us for this special edition of True News. In our next segment, Rick Wall speaks with former CIA Director James Woolsey and EMP expert Dr. Peter Vincent Pry in a joint interview for a chilling and in-depth conversation about the very real threat of electromagnetic pulse attack on North America. Here is that interview from August of 2015. I've been talking publicly for 17 years about the national security threat of an electromagnetic pulse attack. It's difficult to believe that in 2015, the threat still isn't taken seriously by national political leaders and the establishment news media. An electromagnetic pulse could result from a high-altitude nuclear detonation hundreds of miles above the Earth launched by an ICBM or a satellite delivery system. It will fry most electronics in the blast radius thereby instantly pushing civilization back to the 1800s. Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea have the capability to carry out an EMP attack on the United States. Despite the very real threat, Washington is doing little to prepare the country for it, according to Mr. Christopher Curry, Director of Homeland Security and Justice at the U.S. Government Accounting Office. The Department of Homeland Security has failed to address a single recommendation from a 2008 critical national infrastructures report that assess the threat of an EMP attack and solar storms. Former Central Intelligence Agency Director R. James Woolsey warned congressional lawmakers recently that EMP attacks and solar storms represent a threat to the American people. Mr. Woolsey accused the White House and congressional officials of ignoring a potential catastrophe. In addition to serving as CIA Director, Mr. Woolsey also served as Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy and was involved in treaty negotiations with the Soviet Union. Mr. Woolsey is currently the chairman of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He's on the phone right now. Mr. Woolsey, welcome to True News. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be with you. Yes, sir. Honored to have you here. And Dr. Peter Vincent Pry is also joining us today. Dr. Pry is the executive director for the Task Force on National and Homeland Security. He was director of the U.S. Nuclear Strategy Forum. He's also served on the Congressional EMP Commission. He's the author of several books, the Apocalypse Unknown, and also Electric Armageddon. Dr. Pry, glad to have you back on True News. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Let's start with Mr. Woolsey. Previous guests, including Dr. Pry, have made some very dire predictions about the consequences of an EMP attack. What could we face if such an attack is successfully carried out over North America? Well, the problem is that our electric grid is our Achilles heel. You can take out one of our other 17 infrastructures, food, water, transportation, pharmaceuticals, etc., and the others can work and electricity can be used to repair it relatively quickly. But if the electric grid is taken out, either by a solar event or by a Chinese or North Korean blast in orbit that sets up the electromagnetic pulse sorts you were talking about, there's nothing that can replace electricity. And the electricity system, particularly the big, extremely high-voltage transformers, 
take two or three years to build and are built overseas. They're the heart of the, our electric grid. So if all of those systems go down, all of those infrastructures, we are uh, not back in the 1980s pre-web. We're back in the 1880s pre-electric grid, and nobody has, uh, you know or I know, has enough flower forces uh, or uh, vegetable seeds to uh, get through the winter. This is a very serious vulnerability, and the Electromagnetic Pulse Commission that Peter uh, led had in it two uh, estimates for how many casualties there could be in the first year after American casualties, after an electromagnetic pulse event. And uh, they said it would be either 90% or 66, 67%. So, uh, you're, and by casualties, we're talking about deaths. If there's nothing, no water can be pumped so you can't get a drink. And if there's no food that can be delivered because there's no oil for the power of the trucks or the fat tractors to plant the food, everybody is in uh, absolutely uh, terrible shape. And it is devastating. And when you add to that the almost certain social disruption and chaos that would occur, uh, those numbers that the commission came up with of uh, two-thirds to 90 percent dead within the first year don't appear to be an exaggeration. And we need to emphasize this casualty rate is not caused by the EMP blast. That's not going to kill anybody. It's going to fry the electronics. The staggering casualty rate of 67 to 90 percent of the American people would die from the consequences of the country going dark for a long period of time. As you said, no food, no water, no services, no medical care, everything down. That's exactly the problem. Indeed, the blast really isn't a problem at all. Detonation, let's say it occurs 30 kilometers or so forth up in space. The, The blast could be small. It might well not even be seen on the Earth unless somebody was looking at it uh, with a telescope. The problem is the gamma rays, and the rays interact with the magnetosphere around the Earth and produce uh, electromagnetic pulse that can, in different parts of the pulse, they're short wavelength, long wavelength, etc., but between the two most serious ones, can take out not only uh, if your line of sight to where the detonation occurred, personal uh, electronic devices and your car's computer and so forth, but can also most seriously, as I mentioned, take out the transformers that are the heart of the electric grid, and that makes it very, very hard to recover in uh, even a couple of years or so. Those transformers are made mainly in South Korea and Germany, and uh, you got to stand in line, and they're unique, each one, to where it's used, and it's, uh, you know, a couple of three years anyway to, uh, to get a replacement if one of them goes. And uh, That's a very, very serious problem. Dr. Pry, how long could we be in the dark? What are we looking at? We could be in the dark forever. If we lost two-thirds to 90% of our population, there might be no coming back from that. How with 10 to one-third of your population surviving are you going to reconstruct and recover your society? That's why we have to protect our critical infrastructures and electric grid to make sure the catastrophe that uh, the former CIA director Wolsey is describing so that doesn't happen in the first place. It's one of those existential threats that we cannot afford to let happen to us. And that's why the commission, in addition to the Congressional EMP Commission, it was followed by another commission on which Ambassador Woolsey served called the Strategic Posture Commission to reexamine this problem and came to exactly the same conclusion, that it was an urgent matter. In fact, the Strategic Posture Commission you know, recommended that the Department of Energy take the stimulus funds that were being spent by the administration and spend a couple billion dollars of that on hardening the electric grid. Unfortunately, the recommendation was not followed. Mr. Woolsey, you mentioned a few minutes ago about repairing it and the transformers that would have to be rebuilt. These repairs, this is not something you just go to Home Depot and pick up parts and rebuild. 
first of all, everything inside this country is down, and we're going to be totally dependent on foreign countries for the technology and the technicians to put this thing back together. I would think we'd want to be particularly nice to the Germans and the South Koreans, because as far as I know, that's still where the transformers are built, and uh, maybe they'd let us get at the head of the line to uh, to uh, get transformers shipped. But still, uh, the, the threat of the situation being the way Peter uh, described it, of something we can't recover from, is entirely plausible. Dr. Pry, wouldn't we be sitting ducks during a prolonged blackout vulnerable to a military invasion? I think a military invasion would be less of a threat to us. Of course, we would. But the military invasion would be less worrisome to me than the fact that people would be starving to death and dying from lack of water, and that the over 100 nuclear reactors in this country, which are co-located with our major population areas, would probably all go Fukushima. So you would have vast swaths of radioactivity being blown over the land, and that we would lose. You know, at any given moment, there's over 1,000 airliners carrying a half a million people in the skies over this country. In the event of the use of a uh, nuclear EMP weapon, many in the case of a super EMP weapon, such as we think Russia, China, and North Korea probably have, most or all of those airliners would come crashing down, so you'd immediately have a half a million deaths. We'd have our hands full. I'm not sure anybody would want to invade us in the immediate aftermath of an EMP. They wouldn't have to if your object was to eliminate us as an actor from the world stage, which is the object of Iran. They write about doing that in their military writings. That's why they want the bomb. You know, so that they could do an EMP attack to eliminate us as an actor from the world stage. That's why North Korea would do it as well. A foreign country would just sit back and wait on the American people to die off in a year and then come in on a humanitarian mission. Well, I'm not sure they have to bother coming in at all. And it would be very difficult to come in and do it. One of the other reasons why repairing the grid is not a practical solution and just like feeding the American people in the aftermath of an EMP wouldn't be a practical solution, is that all the critical infrastructures are going to collapse when you lose the electric grid. This includes communications and transportation. You know, even if you were able somehow, you know, to prevail upon the charitable instincts of South Korea and have them deliver to our shores the hundreds of extra high-voltage transformers, and it's not just the transformers that would be destroyed. There's all kinds of electronics that would be destroyed, including SCADA systems, which are just as important to the grid and the critical infrastructures. There's millions of them in all of our critical infrastructures. What do you do when the cranes won't work, you know, at the port of entry, and the railroad systems won't work so you can move food and transformers and other goods and services where, where there's no gasoline so you can't use diesel trucks, you know? Invading us would be a very difficult problem because our infrastructures wouldn't work, and I'm not sure you'd want the territory anyway after at least half of that has been covered with radioactive waste. I had not thought about that previously, that we would have nuclear reactor meltdowns. Yes. I was just going to say, Peter's put his finger on one of the really big problems, which is, in fact, what would happen to the reactors. To get a feel dystopian look at this through a short and well-done novel, uh, there's an author named William Fortune, spelled not like a lot of money, but F-O-R-T-S-D-H-E-N, called One Second After, which is about what happens uh, beginning with an EMP uh, blast or detonation in a small town in uh, North Carolina. And one man in the town is the only one who can get around on wheels because he's a collector of old cars and he's got an head to him and doesn't have any electronics in it. But all the other cars, of course, have their electronics fried. Yeah, I know, Bill. That novel is chilling. Well, here's yeah. some other things that are often not thought of, the secondary effects of the EMP. You know, for example, natural gas pipelines all have skaters, you know, that make them operate, that run the pumps. Those are almost certainly going to cause massive explosions all over the place. There are cases where skaters have failed 
from radio electronic transients, not from attacks, but from things, you know, like uh, it's described in the EMP Commission report, you know, a Navy exercise was happening offshore, and it caused a SCADA to malfunction and caused a three-foot diameter natural gas pipeline to explode. Whole towns can be wiped out by natural gas line explosions. You can have firestorms in cities resulting from that. The oil refineries and gas refineries, I mean, if you look at these things, they're gigantic, complicated, electrically driven chemistry sets. And you're going to have all kinds of industrial accidents and fires, toxic gas going all over the place. So the biggest environmental disaster in history, people, the administration's concerned about global warming. They want to save the environment. Well, they should be more concerned about saving the environment from an EMP attack. Because in my judgment, a more realistic threat, and it is far more likely to cause an environmental catastrophe that would kill millions of Americans than climate change. There's also a risk, uh, we're running into probabilities being moderately high now, that we would see an electromagnetic pulse, essentially a very large one, coming from the sun. So, you know, you may see the lights go out and you may not know whether it's the North Koreans or a sun, a solar weather event. But we're kind of due for one of these huge so-called Carrington effect solar electromagnetic events because they happen a kind of once a century plus and we're about 150 years since the last one. So, uh, you know, it's not sure it's just probabilities, but there's that possibility, too. Several years ago, there was a coordinated commando attack against a power station in California. What are we facing, you know, a coordinated terrorist attack against electrical power stations? Could such an attack result in a major blackout of most of the nation? I'll say a quick word on this, and Peter knows more about it than I, and he was about to say something else, so let me just say a quick word to get into it. This was at Metcalf, California, right on the edge of Silicon Valley, uh, two years ago, April 16. Uh, what's interesting about that is it uh, was the same day as the Boston Marathon bombings. And they stayed with their original schedule, which is 18th of April, instead of moving because of weekend and so forth to 16th. It would have been on the anniversary of the beginning of the American Revolution, 18th of April. And terrorists love anniversaries and such. And so one thing to keep in mind is when you have a batch of six or eight guys in camis with AK-47s go train and then they get into pre-surveyed positions so they can take out with their AK-47s a maximum number of transformers, it kind of doesn't look just like hooliganism, you know, and it's something that we have to pay attention to. There's more than one way to uh, destroy our uh, electronic system, and that would have taken out a great deal if they hadn't been interrupted of electricity for Silicon Valley. Peter, you know a lot about this. Yeah, I'd like to follow up, though, before we get too far away from it, because we've been talking all about man-made EMP. But the point that you made earlier, Jim, about the recurrence of a geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event, for which we are overdue, many regard that as an even more serious threat than the nuclear EMP attack or the attack by terrorists on transformer substations, because it's inevitable. It's going to happen for sure, and there's no deterring it. There's no stopping it. We were narrowly missed by a Carrington-class coronal mass ejection that would have had catastrophic consequences for the whole planet. If we get hit by a Carrington event, it would cause an EMP everywhere, not just in North America, and cause the collapse of electric grids and life-sustaining critical infrastructures worldwide and put billions of lives at risk. But You said we were nearly hit uh, when, Peter? Yeah, July 23, 2012, there was a coronal mass ejection across the path of the Earth by three days. It missed us by three days. This was in a NASA report from July 23, 2014, this two-year anniversary of, of that close call. And that same NASA report estimates that the likelihood of the occurrence of a geomagnetic superstorm is 12% per decade, you know, which virtually guarantees that it will happen in our lifetimes or that of our children. 
Now, to go to the question I was originally asked, which is, you know, what about non-nuclear EMP attacks or sabotage? Yes, that's also a very serious threat. The U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission did a study that showed that of the 2,000 extra high-voltage transformer substations in our electric grid, our national electric grid, if you know which nine, there are nine key ones, and if you could figure out which of those to attack, you could take down the whole electric grid for over a year, for over a year, for 18 months. And, you know, and that would also have the catastrophic consequences we're talking about. And I would add that in the military doctrines of the bad guys, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, even though you could take down the grid just with a cyber attack, or you could take down the grid just by physical sabotage, or you could do it with non-nuclear EMP, or you could do it with nuclear EMP, they plan to throw everything at us. There's an old saying that when you go to kill the emperor, you must succeed. And that's what their military plan is. They would make a coordinated attack using cyber attacks, physical attacks on the transformer substations, radio frequency weapons, and nuclear EMP to make sure that they can kill us. That's their plan. And the Metcalf incident that Jim was describing was probably part of an exercise, I think it was, because on that very day, April 16, 2013, we were in the middle of the most serious ever nuclear crisis with North Korea. And on that very day, they orbited a KSM-3 satellite at us over the South Pole. But I've been talking, Jim, this is a threat that you've been particularly concerned about. Why don't you describe, you know, explain to them, what is this business about making an EMP attack by satellite? Why are the North Koreans and the Iranians so fixated on orbiting satellites over us from the South Pole? Well, the simplest way to get a huge kill for electromagnetic pulse is to detonate a satellite, it could be a small satellite with a small, simple nuclear weapon in it, on orbit. And that takes out the uh, electronics line of sight beneath it in a large area, and it also, um, different wavelengths, uh, takes out much of the electric grid by running transmission along the transmission lines, the long wavelength uh, pulse. So you've got a way to do this, and all you need really is a nuclear weapon and the ability to launch a satellite. The ability to launch a satellite is the first thing any country that goes into space does. It's the first thing Russians did with Sputnik, first thing we did. Not that hard. It's much easier than shooting at a target on the other side of the Earth and having to worry about reentry and accuracy and all that. Here you're just detonating something roughly up somewhere above the center of the United States, let's say. And people say, well, don't we have ballistic missile defense? And don't we have surveillance? Wouldn't we know what was going on? Yes, we do a bit. We haven't worked much on it in this administration or really in the previous one for the last number of years, so it's pretty old and only parts of it are really very modern. And it's all, virtually all, pointed to the north because the concern was Russia or China launching at us from where they are up over the roughly the North Pole and coming down against the United States. Well, what the Russians devised some years ago is something that lets them launch a satellite, a polar orbit satellite, that comes at us from the south, from the South Pole instead of the north. So you launch, uh, North Korea would launch down toward China, and its satellite would go into orbit somewhere, maybe over the South Pole, and it would come around the Earth from the south and uh, continue to come at us from that direction. It would make it a lot harder for us initially to see anything that had happened or to track anything on our radars and infrared systems and the like, which point to the north, not the south. Well, uh, Peter knows more about this than I do. I imagine you're talking about the uh, cargo uh, that is a ship-based system that looks like a cargo container on the deck or some may be raised up onto deck from below. 
This is a space vehicle. This is a vehicle in outer space that has been making unusual maneuverings in recent weeks. It's like, is it a killer weapon? Is this a space-based weapon? The one I'm about to describe gets to outer space, and it can stay up there as long as you want, as long as it's in orbit. But the thing is that it's a really fast cruise missile, much faster than Mach 2 or so, as it starts out, and then it goes ballistic and goes up into orbit. So it can stay up there in orbit for a long time and then detonate whenever anybody on Earth wants to detonate it. I don't know, Peter May, I don't know what utility there is in maneuvering once you are up there in space, What you're in good shape of doing what you want to do if you just uh, are uh, in a polar uh, orbit and able to be uh, detonated most any time. While we're on the subject of Russian launch vehicles, what about Russia's Club K container missile delivery system? That's the one I was describing. That's it? Okay. It into a container mm-hmm. that looks like just a regular transportation container that would be on a ship. But in fact, it's got a missile in it that starts out as a cruise missile and then can get up into orbit at 30 kilometers or so. The Russians could bring this thing into Baltimore, into San Diego. Nobody would know. Yeah. If they wanted to shoot from the harbor, they could, or they could shoot from 100 miles offshore and get up into orbit, and nobody probably would know. Do we know which countries have purchased the Club K missile delivery system? Peter, I don't. Do you? I don't know all of them, but I know know Iran. I know Iran. Yeah, that's right. Iran has purchased it. And the Club K is designed for export. The Russians don't plan to use it in their own forces. They've been selling it to countries, third world countries that are hostile to the United States, basically because it basically can convert any freighter into a missile platform. It's also designed to carry a conventional or nuclear warhead. If you had a nuclear warhead to put on it, it would be exactly the nightmare scenario the EMP Commission had in mind. You know, a missile launch system disguised to look like a shipping container. You don't even have to modify the ship, you know, as long as it can carry shipping containers, and that's what freighters are designed to do. You know, you could just stick this thing on it and, you know, go to the Caribbean, in an area where we have no ballistic missile early warning radars, as Jim noted earlier, and do a surprise EMP attack on us. You know, we might never be able to figure out who did it. Which nation represents the most serious threat? My nomination would be Iran. It may not have a nuclear weapon yet. It may be somewhere between weeks and months away, depending on the nature of this very bad agreement that the administration is in the process of trying to get through Congress. But the fanaticism of the Iranian leadership is incredible. And, I mean, all this death to America, death to Israel, it's it's theocratic, totalitarian, and genocidal. And in spite of their craziness, the North Koreans, they might be the second uh, probability because their leadership is nuttier than a bunch of fruit orchard boars. But the fanatic religious devotion to destroying us is something that I think is probably front and center for the Iranians. Now, things could get bad enough between us and the Chinese or us and the Russians. Uh, This could come from some other direction. But you need not only the ability to put a satellite into orbit, you need also a nuclear weapon. And question whether uh, Iran has one yet, or but even if it doesn't, it may well have one rather soon. North Korea does have both satellite launch capability and uh, nuclear weapons. And so, of course, do Russia and China. Dr. Pryor, we know that North Korean scientists and rocket experts have been in Tehran, assisting the Iranian nuclear rocket program. Are you concerned that these two nations may conspire to jointly carry out an EMP attack on the U.S.? Sure. I'm concerned that China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran might all jointly conspire to bring an EMP attack. If Iran ever does make a nuclear EMP attack, 
we might never know that the real mover behind this might have been Russia. There is a tacit alliance between all four of those countries. There's an actual formal alliance between North Korea and Iran, where they're supposed to share technology and be strategic partners. There was a study done by the Russian general staff's favorite think tank called Inobis after the end of the Cold War that recommended as a matter of policy that Russia deliberately proliferate nuclear and missile technology to our adversaries, and named in that word North Korea and Iran. And we know the Russians have helped both of these countries in both nuclear and missile technology. So, yeah, I am concerned about that. And, and a point that reinforces what Jim was saying, I think that fact, the fact that you've got a tacit alliance among these actors, reinforces the point that Jim made about being most concerned about Iran. Because if you're Russia, and don't forget the Russians are chess players, if you wanted to do a nuclear attack and take the United States out, why do it yourself and risk retaliation when you've got the crazy Iranians willing to do it? Mr. Woolsey, several weeks ago, Vladimir Putin made a cryptic remark in which he said he was eager to demonstrate to Russia's rivals and partners Russia's new technologies. Did you see that statement? I think somebody told me about it. You know, I don't think he's talking about a new coffee maker or or television uh, set. Consumer goods are not at the peak of Russian interest, uh, right. at least to produce. I think it could well be related to these issues. I don't know. Putin is pretty cagey usually about what he says about these things. He keeps it a bit vague. But I'm very worried about his imperial designs, his behavior, not including yet uh, the anti-Semitism, is so much like Hitler's in the 1930s, gobbling up neighbor states based on the rationale that in the 30s it was a German and now it's a Russian minority that needs to be protected. He uh, really has followed Hitler's game plan, like I say, and everything so far, except the fanatic anti-Semitism, very, very closely. And the fact that he has done so and that he might well uh, want to extend, uh, as Peter said, uh, this undertaking and let somebody else carry the water for him, like, say, North Korea or Iran, with respect to uh, EMP, is a real possibility. Now, if I had Mr. Putin on the program, he would say that NATO and the United States is messing with him and provoking him, trying to drag him out for a fight. Well, my view is the way you avoid uh, that kind of accusation is by being so much extremely clearly stronger than he is that he's afraid to make charges. And that's what President Reagan did for us was to reverse some of the build-down in the military that we had during the first three years of the Carter administration and as a reaction to the Vietnam War and put us on a track whereby the Russians understood they were never going to be able to catch us and rival us. It was hopeless for them. And it's, I think, what eventually drove them to Glasnost and Perestroika and Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And there's the very fundamental change that it, it looked for a couple of decades there as if Russia was going through uh, yeah, Russia now looks, again, very much like it did under the communists, and we have, again, a set of very serious problems with them. As a former CIA director, are you satisfied with Mr. Obama's nuclear agreement with Iran? Absolutely not. Why? Where to start? Well, in the first place, it might be a reasonable agreement with the provisions it has and so forth, as long as it was with Denmark. But since it's not, since it's an agreement with a state that is theocratic, totalitarian, imperialist, conquering now five neighboring countries, and genocidal, all the chance of death to America and death to Israel, to try to pretend as if you can deal with the Iranian government the way we would deal with other kind of normal states, 
is, I think, so naive as to be almost suicidal. And will they cheat? Of course they'll cheat. They won't do anything except cheat. They have a word, tahia, which means essentially lying to infidels. And it's not just permitted, it's recommended. They believe they have a national religious mission of first order to destroy us and to destroy Israel. And people uh, like to say that, well, they're just talking and this is just for domestic consumption and so forth. Nonsense. Hitler thought he also was getting some improved domestic support in the early 30s when he started talking this way. But Hitler was far cagier in what he said in the 30s until World War II actually started than Putin and North Korea and Iran. The opposing states here are a huge reason why this agreement has no chance of working. And you can go into the individual provisions and how the snapback sanctions are not going to snap back and how we're going to be ending up giving them $150 billion from the sanction money that's being held and what they will do with that, They're giving it to Hamas and to Hezbollah and using it to expand more and more uh, in that part of the world. There are lots of individual problems with this, but the fundamental one is that it is sheer madness to think you can have an abided-by contractual relationship and deal with Iran. It's just fanciful. Secretary Kerry admitted to Senator Rubio under questioning that this agreement obligates the United States to defend Iran against an Israeli attack. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's one of its bigger bits of nonsense that's embodied in it. It's kind of amazing if it were not so tragic, if it were just bizarre provisions like that in another context, you could almost put it on as a Saturday Night Live skit as the fact that someone would make it an example of arms control is really laughable. But it's so potentially tragic, nobody wants to laugh at it. But it's just suicidally naive to assume that the Iranians are going to observe this agreement. They may be cagey and take a two or three years instead of six or eight months to work their cheating and develop their uh, alternative sites inside mountains that we can't find and and all of the things that they will do. But they're cagey. Persians invented chess, and they're good at it. And so, you know, they may give the world a little bit of slack for a year or two, but not much more than that, and dreaming that it's going to be a solid agreement with a country that observes treaties is just purely fanciful. I'm going to nominate John Kerry for the Neville Chamberlain Award. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I don't think there'll be any other nominees. Hey, two more questions before we run out of time. Dr. Pry, Great Britain's Space Weather Preparedness Strategy report said last week that humanity would have only 12 hours of warning before the arrival of a coronal mass ejection from the sun, what are the potential consequences of a direct hit by a solar storm? Well, actually, they got it wrong. The reason they said 12 hours, it actually only took 11 hours for the 1859 Carrington event to cross the almost 100 billion miles between the sun and the earth, 11 hours. However, it's not enough to see the coronal mass ejection coming at you to be able to take strategic warning and undertake actions because it depends on the charge. These coronal mass ejections have a spin on them, a charge, a negative or a positive charge. And if it's a positive charge, then it can hit the Earth and it won't actually do much of anything. And the electric power industry is not going to take steps, you know, that will end up killing lots of people by blacking out their system, which is the only thing they could do. And there's no guarantees that even if they did that, that it would work. But they're not going to do it until they know 
well, is this a problem for sure or not? And we don't get warning until about 20 minutes before impact. We've got a satellite called the ACE that's sitting out there. It's about 20 minutes, its location in space. Before the coronal mass ejection reaches us, it'll hit the ACE satellite, and that will be able to tell what kind of charge is on the coronal mass ejection, whether it's positive or negative. So we've really only got 20 minutes of warning, even though you can see it coming for 11 or 12 hours before it hits, if it's one of those. Now, could you repeat your original question? Well, I was asking what would be the potential consequences of a direct hit by a solar storm? Oh, if it's a Carrington-class coronal mass ejection, Carrington-class geomagnetic storm, it would be like nuclear EMP attacks all over the world, except the small microelectronics wouldn't be destroyed. I mean, your car would still run, but it wouldn't do you any good because you wouldn't be able to get gasoline for your car. The airplanes would probably not crash out of the sky, so you'd be okay there but the traffic control systems down on the ground would be all messed up. So you might still end up with lots of fatalities from crashing airliners when they try to land at airports. You know, there'd be no lights anywhere, food and water, just like with a nuclear EMP attack. You know, basically it would collapse the electric grid and all the life-sustaining critical infrastructures and put billions of lives at risk if we're talking about the, the once in a hundred, once in a 150-year Carrington-class geomagnetic superstorm that NASA warns us has a 12% per decade likelihood of occurrence, which, again, virtually guarantees we will experience such an event within our lifetimes or that of our children, which is why there we are uh, end the $2 billion that it would take to protect the national electric grid from EMP, but we can't get the electric power industry to do that. And, Mr. Woolsey, your last question. As a former CIA director, what thoughts enter your mind when you read that NORAD is moving back inside Cheyenne Mountain? That finally somebody is waking up. I mean, I don't think NORAD would be doing this if they weren't worried about uh, ENT. And I'm glad that they would take steps that may mean that our strategic command and control for strategic bombers and submarines and ICBMs and so forth would still be able to be used if we wanted. But there's a big footnote here, which is that if you're not sure who launched the EMP, whether it was, say, North Korea or China, then it's hard to figure out how you would operate a deterrent because the deterrent is somebody does not attack you because he's worried about retaliation. But if everybody knows we wouldn't know who to retaliate against, having our command and control in ship shape in the middle of a mountain that does us only a modest amount of good. Well, gentlemen, we're out of time. I thank you for being here today. My guest, former CIA Director James Woolsey and EMP expert Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, the author of Electric Armageddon. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for tuning in today to this uh, very special edition of True News. You need to be prepared. I mean, uh, you heard Dr. Pry talk about a potential for a Carrington event. Uh, then we have the potential for attacks from at least four nuclear powers out there that could deliver an EMP uh, attack at any time they so choose. And the most recent news, of course, coming out of Russia is that Russia has somehow launched a new technology that is scaring the skivvies off folks in Washington, D.C. So something's up there. That should be a clue to you to stay prepared. Now, right now, American Reserves is offering 15% off all products on the American Reserves site, including what you see here. This is the meat and sides bucket that they offer on the American Reserves site. 
All products on the site right now, 15% off as a way to say thank you to True News listeners. How can you take advantage of that discount? Well, you need to enter the discount code, and it's easy to remember because it's True News. And so when you go to checkout, order your items, and when you go to checkout, it'll ask for your discount code, and you just simply type in True News. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, learning a little bit more about the potential for an EMP attack on North America. We are going to keep a close watch on this story over the next several days. We're coming up on the second anniversary of the Ukraine conflict, and the Russians are big on dates. And so we need to be very, very aware of what's happening. The Russians recently launched a Soyuz rocket earlier this month with a classified payload. Is that an anniversary gift for the West and North America? I hope not, but are you prepared if it is? AmericanReserves.com, that's the place to go. God bless you. We'll see you on the next edition of True News. Morning Man is next. Welcome, everybody. Yes, good morning. Uh, today's lesson is, uh, I'm, I'm really eager to teach it. I most likely will not get through all the material. Uh, it just kept coming to me. Um, maybe it's because the Lord wants me to learn more about this subject today. So, uh, But he just kept giving me more revelation. So I don't know if I'll get through the entire lesson today, but we will get started right now. So um, okay. let's, let's pray, Father. We thank you for this beautiful day. We give you glory and honor and thanksgiving, and we invite your Holy Spirit into today's morning manna Bible study to teach us your word. Lead us, Father, to a better understanding of the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. God, verse 7. All right. A moment here. Get over there real quick. Good morning, everyone, for joining us today. We have uh, 14 countries that have already checked in here with us this morning. We appreciate that. We do this live every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time here on Faith and Values. So if you're listening at another time, we invite you to join with us live each and every weekday morning. Uh, we are still in Chapter 5 in the Beatitudes of uh, in uh, St. Matthew, and just reading verse 7 here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Praise God. So, officially, I want to welcome everybody to the weekday Bible study that is the, uh, the Ministry of Faith and Values Fellowship in Vero Beach, Florida, because that's what you're attending. You're attending the weekday Bible study of Faith and Values Fellowship, and we invite people to support Faith and Values Fellowship as we use digital technology to reach the body of Christ around the world and teach the word of God. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Another way of saying it is, happy are merciful people, for God shall show them mercy. Merciful people are pronounced happy by Jesus. We all want to be happy. So, we should learn what it means to be merciful. The happiness promised by Jesus is a consciousness of perfect rest, joy, and peace. It is not human happiness as defined by society. 
heavenly happiness is defined by God. Right. Now, I need and desire mercy today. <coughs> and I will need maximum mercy on the day of the Lord. When I receive God's mercy on the day of the Lord, I will be immensely happy forever. Happiness and joy are God's deepest desires for his children. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise God. Death, death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain will be banished, my friends. But happiness and joy will be ours forever. So what is mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? Uh, the Greek word translated as merciful is eliamon. It means to be full of pity, compassionate towards others. Mercy involves a deep emotion of the heart in response to the miseries of others. Merciful includes pardoning the wrongdoings committed by others against you, showing acts of kindness towards people with needs, financial or material gifts to people <clears throat> in a state of lack. Mercy, according to Jesus, is a heartfelt response to the distress of others. The merciful person not only endures personal afflictions, but actively shares in the sufferings of others. This empathy results in a readiness to assist, clothing oneself with the same affections as those in need. Right. So what is mercy? <clears throat> Earlier I said it means to be full of pity, to be compassionate towards others. But mercy is more than giving money or items to those in financial distress or severe lack. Mercy is more than forgiving wrongdoings committed by others against you. In its fullest sense, mercy extends beyond charity and forgiveness. The Latin word from which we derive our English word mercy means to have a heart that shows pity and feels emotional pain at the sight of the pain, suffering, loss, and misery of others. Maintaining a state of mind and heart that is merciful towards others will assure that God's mercy will continuously flow into your life. It's a state of mind. Yes. Mercy isn't something you just do once in a while. It's a state of mind. We are to remain in a state of mercy all the time. Mercy requires us to be in submission to Christ. Mercy requires us to be Christ-like. 
we think of mercy as something we do once in a while. Oh, I, I was merciful to that person. I gave him some money for food. Right. No, you are to be in a state of mercy, mercifulness all the time. <clears throat> mercy involves three essential components. Number one, recognizing the plight, the pain, the loss, the suffering of others. Number two, experiencing an emotional response to their plight. And number three, taking action steps to alleviate their suffering and pain. So the merciful person actively shares in all three of these components, recognizing that somebody has pain, loss, feeling their loss, feeling their pain, and then taking action steps to alleviate the pain. It's, it's impossible to read the Holy Bible and not recognize that mercy is dear to God's heart. He speaks about it in almost every book of the Bible. Mercy is mentioned 208 times in 24 books of the Old Testament. Hmm. That's interesting. And 54 times in 17 books of the New Testament. So let's start with the Old Testament. And we'll begin with the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? It was the place in the Holy of Holies where forgiveness was transferred to the Israelites in return for their sins. It was the place of reconciliation between God and the Israelites. And God dwelt above the mercy seat. Yes. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he didn't look up. If he looked up, he'd see God and he would die. Because no human can see God and live in this life. The mercy seat was introduced to us in Exodus 25, 22. By the way, what I just said, God, God the Father gave us his son Jesus so that we could see him. He put himself in a human body so we could see him. So the mercy seat was introduced to us in Exodus 25, 22. And there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So the mercy seat was symbolic of God's throne where he sat in judgment. The priest would place blood from sacrifice animals upon the mercy seat. And as long as God saw the blood on the mercy seat, God saw only the blood, not the sins of the people. And then he accepted the Israelites as his people. Mercy is mentioned 99 times in the Psalms. Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Anybody here not want goodness and mercy to follow them all the days of your life? 
Well, I can tell you how to make sure it doesn't follow you. Show no mercy to anybody. Right. That's a good word. If you desire goodness and mercy to follow you every day of your life, then you have to show mercy every day of your life. So I talked about the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Let's talk about mercy in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Jesus gave his life in a bloody sacrifice to redeem us. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. God's forgiveness of our sins and his approval of us as his people is granted through faith in the name of Jesus and the power of his blood to atone for our sins. At the cross, the mercy seat became a throne of grace. Yes. Hebrews 4, 4 verse 16. Let's therefore draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Isn't it interesting that it says to do that boldly? Yes. Don't, without any shame, without any apprehension, come boldly to the throne of grace. That yes. throne of mercy. And what, you, and what will you receive when you come boldly to the throne of grace? Mercy. Yes. In your time of need. And yet Jesus said that the, the merciful are happy, for they shall obtain mercy. So every verse in the Bible that talks about mercy, we have to study it and understand it. So Hebrews 416 telling us to come with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Amazingly, Jesus is the mercy seat. Yes. Now listen to this. Doc, you're going to like this. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the high priest who sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed. As the blood that was put on the mercy seat. Hmm. Yes. It's his blood. He, he's the high priest. He's the sacrificed lamb. It's his blood. He's the mercy seat. He's everything. The first new covenant verse that mentions mercy is the verse that we are studying today. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Yes. There are 53 more mentions of mercy in the new covenant scriptures. In Luke chapter 1, Mary went to the hill country to visit Zacharias and Elizabeth. The infant, John the Baptist, was inside Elizabeth's womb. The moment Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby leaped inside her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke a blessing on Mary. Then Mary, pregnant with Jesus, sang her beautiful song. 
beginning with the words, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has looked at the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Then in verse 50, his mercy is for generations and generations on those who fear him. And then verses 54 and 55, he has given help to Israel, his servant, that he might remember mercy as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. We are Israel. His mercy is upon us. He's given help to us, his servant, that we might remember mercy. Many other verses are similar to Matthew 9, 27, when people who were desperate for miracles addressed Jesus as the son of David and implored him to have mercy on them. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Matthew 20, verse 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. The blind man could see that he was the son of David. <laughs> Even a blind man can see it, yes. Let's read Matthew 9. Doc, I'll have you read this one. Okay. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Okay. All right, Matthew chapter 9, reading from the King James. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he saith to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, many, behold, many publicans and sinners, came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." I will have mercy. Yes. Go and learn what this means. Look, when Jesus says to somebody, I suggest you go and learn this. 
don't, don't be dumb. <laughs> Come and learn don't something. Don't be an idiot. I mean, Jesus looked in the eyes of the Pharisees and said, I suggest that you learn this verse. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because you can be certain the Pharisees puffed up with pride. They knew that verse. It came from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. How dare Jesus tell the Pharisees, you should go learn this verse. They were the teachers. They were the experts. And you've got this young man telling these older Pharisees, you don't even know what this verse means. It was God who said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of me, God, more than burnt offerings. Yes. The English words associated with the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is kesed. The English words associated with kesed include favor, love, kindness, goodness, benevolence. This is the Hebrew word for, for mercy, kesed. Favor, love, kindness, goodness, benevolence. People who say that God in the Old Testament was stern and harsh, I would say they don't know my father. Because when I read the Old Testament, I see a loving God. I don't see a harsh, mean God. I see a loving God who was not understood by the people that he blessed. Yes. He had to impose strict laws on the rebellious Jews because they required it. But his heart was always tender and loving. He could never receive from the Jews the tender love that he desired. Right. And he seldom saw them exhibit his level of mercy to their fellow Jews and Gentiles. God was exasperated with them. That's why he had them locked down with so many rules and regulations and laws. Because their heart wouldn't, wouldn't do it on its own. They had to be told what to do. <laughs> At its core, Hosea 6.6 6 highlights God's preference for genuine goodness and love over mere religious, ritualistic observance. It means that if God had a choice, he would much more prefer to see you showing kindness and goodness towards others, especially those in great need, than for you to perform religious ceremonies and rituals for him. He is impressed by mercy. Think this through. <laughs> These... If you put it before God, God, I can do these rituals for you. I can go through all these religious ceremonies for you. I can chant. I can pray. I can do um, all kinds of penance, whatever you want. Or I could be merciful. Which one do you prefer? God's going to say, I want you to be merciful. That's his heart. He... He would much more prefer to see you showing kindness and goodness towards others. 
then performing ceremonies for him. He's impressed by mercy. God's greater delight is seeing you and me acting and behaving towards others in a spirit of true love and benevolence. Yes. Benevolence, that's an old word that isn't used very much these days. We used to have benevolence societies. And benevolence funds. Churches used to have benevolence funds. They were set up in case there was a special need in the congregation or maybe uh, there was somebody in the community that, you know, suffered some sort of tragedy or something like that. But we had benevolence funds that we set aside within our churches. So, right. So religion does not impress God, but he perks up and he smiles when he sees us acting mercifully towards others. Why? Because we are imitating him. Once again, the Beatitudes are about being, not doing. Yet, what I'm about to say seems like it contradicts what I just said. I said, the Beatitudes are about being, not doing. The state of our heart is emphasized over our actions. But when it comes to mercy... Action is required to prove that your heart is merciful. Right. The being is having a merciful heart. But the proof that you have a merciful heart is your actions (coughs) to show mercy. You cannot be merciful without corresponding acts of mercy. See, the other Beatitudes... Poverty of spirit. That's a state of my heart. It does not require me to do anything towards you. Mourning. That's a state of my heart. I am mourning my sinfulness. It has nothing to do with you. But when you come to mercy, Hmm. I have to show you mercy to prove to God that my the state of my heart is merciful. And God does the same thing. He proves he's merciful by doing things. Yes. Right? God does the same yes. thing. To, to have no actions contradicts the claim that you're merciful. Mercy demands more than our recognition of the plight of others. It demands action to alleviate their suffering, their lack, their trouble. Now I'm gonna go to the book of James. I I call it the book of ouch. (laughs) Oh man. We did a great study in the book of James one time here uh, at the ministry. And it, I, I, my Bible in James is uh, marked up Mm. with all sorts of notes from that particular study that we had. Yeah, if you ever find yourself getting cocky and proud, just go read the book of James. That'll knock some sense into you. James 2, verses 14 through 18. I I love James. I love his attitude. What good is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? And if a brother or sister is naked and in lack of daily food, and one of you 
tells him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Yet you didn't give them the things the body needs. What good is it? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead in itself. Yes, a man will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my, my faith by my works. If you believe the Holy Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit and is without error, you must accept that it was written, that it was the same Holy Spirit who inspired both Paul and James to write their epistles. The Holy Spirit wasn't confused. He didn't give James one doctrine and Paul another doctrine. Both men agree on the worthlessness of a faith devoid of good works. Right. The problem arises when people misinterpret Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. James is not refuting Paul's doctrine, but he's addressing the error of those who misinterpret it. Right. James confronted the misuse of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, where some individuals believe that good works were unnecessary as long as they believed orthodox views. James rebuked that doctrine and asserted the necessity of good works for salvation. <clears throat> so James highlighted the irony of a faith that produces no deeds, but plenty of talk. And he compared it to a dead faith incapable of saving a true living faith is evidenced by actions not mere words and so james used a practical example of someone who claims to be a christian but fails to demonstrate it through merciful actions towards those in need he said it is hypocrisy to offer empty words of sympathy without providing tangible assistance to those who are suffering for someone to say i'm hungry and to say well let me pray for you be blessed now go your way and not give that person some food that's hypocrisy there's no there's no evidence that your faith is alive your heart was cold somebody's telling you i'm hungry i'm thirsty i'm cold you have to do something. I remember um, many different things in my early walk with the Lord as he taught me to be merciful. I, I grew up in Maryland and our winters were not like Florida. <laughs> uh, January and February could be bitterly cold with uh, uh, blizzards. And, you know, temperatures below zero and uh, many feet of snow and howling winds. And I, I remember one such day, I was a young Christian uh, in, my, in my late 20s. And there was a blizzard. And um, I was out, you know, I remember it was a, a Saturday. And I, uh, you know, uh, the, the snow had stopped, but the the streets were still full of snow and it was very very cold and i had to go to the post office and i'll tell you why i went to the post office 
I was eager to mail my offering to the Lord. I was sending money to a ministry and I was eager to get it in the mail. I didn't back then. I was so eager. I couldn't wait. We didn't have Internet giving. We couldn't give electronically. You had to mail it. You had to physically take it to a church or mail your gift to a ministry. And I couldn't wait. When I Every time I got paid, I couldn't wait to get an offering in the mail. And so, yeah, there were many feet of snow on the streets. And, you know, the snow piles had opened up the streets. And, yeah, it was, it was below zero. But I had to get to the post office. And so I walked into the post office, an old 1930s depression era post office building, big old, you know, federal government building. Nobody was in there. And as I was putting the envelope in the mail slot, and I remember saying, Lord, I release my faith. I'm giving you this offering. This is by faith. I heard the Lord say, I heard the Holy Spirit say, Offerings to me belong more, or, or how do they say it? Um, it's, it was basically like this. Uh, it's not only the church, the church buildings, the church ministries that receive the offerings. It's the poor also. I heard that. And I thought about it as I'm putting that envelope in the slot I turned and started to walk towards the door to go down the steps down on the street where I was parked and there was a homeless man standing there and he was shivering and he looked over at me and he said I am cold I still remember it I still remember it. And the first thought came to me, he's not a human. He's an angel. Hmm. To this day, I believe he was an angel. I didn't have a lot of money. I was a young man with family. It was wintertime. It was cold, you know. Was trying to keep heat in the house. But I had to reach down and find something for him. I had, to, I had to give money I couldn't give. I had to do something for him. That look, I still see him turning and looking at me and saying, I am cold. Mm-hmm. Jesus teaches us that true faith in him is evidenced by merciful works of love and obedience to God's will. He warns us against the danger of a religious faith that is dormant, unproductive, uncaring about others, unwilling to help brothers and sisters who are in distress. James said such faith is dead and cannot lead to eternal salvation. How can our faith be alive and vibrant and producing good works? It must be watered from deep springs of mercy in our souls. Your heart has to be tender. Without mercy, 
you will not produce good works. Without mercy, you will be self-centered and obsessed with your own needs. Mercy is not a new doctrine introduced in the new covenant. God has always expected his people to be merciful. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 26 to 27. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Yes. Wait a minute. Isn't that the same as saying, blessed are the merciful, you shall receive mercy? Yes. That's old, I'm quoting Old Testament. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. God told the Jews, if you will be merciful, I'll be merciful to you. Samuel went on to say, with the perfect man, you will show yourself perfect. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the crooked, you will show yourself shrewd. How do you want God to show himself to you? He'll match your ways. Praise God. And up you one. Psalm 18, verse 25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. The, mer the word merciful in Hebrew is linked to pain or lamentation. Mercy involves two essential components. Number one, recognizing a distressed individual or situation. Number two, experiencing heartfelt compassion in response. And I'll add the three, which I mentioned in the beginning, then taking action. Yes. Mercy is an emotional response that compels you to empathize with and lament over the sufferings of others. A merciful person is one who not only sympathizes with others and their misfortunes, but actively engages in alleviating their distress <clears throat> that you can't find any rest until you do something about it. Thinking about the, the house that we built. Her name was uh, Dalma Lira. This goes way, way back to um, 19... 1998, I was still working for TBN. There was this full-page article in the Dallas Morning News about a woman <clears throat> named Delma Lira. She was down on the South Texas border. Um, and uh, she was a Hispanic woman, and she had five children, and she was living in a school bus with no electricity, no water, no heat, no air conditioning, and um, her husband had died, and she was there, a widow with these children. I read the article. I was touched by it. I, I, I tore the, the page out of the newspaper, folded it up, and put it in my briefcase. I don't know why. It just bothered me. And at times I would pray for, for her. I would take that article out and lay hands on that article and pray. Oh, Lord, help this woman. Well, little did I know who he had in mind. 
the more I prayed for her <laughs> that somebody would go and help her, the more troubled I was. Yes. And this went on for a long, long time. I mean, this went on for a year. Eventually, um, you know, I left uh, TBN. God called me into this ministry. I left TBN. And uh, uh, I left TBN in, in, in September of 98. I didn't start the radio program until May of 99. But after I left TBN, I, I, one day I told Susan, I said, you know, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to drive down to uh, South Texas and find this woman. It was a 10-hour drive. Texas is a big state. It was 10 hours to get down toward, to the border. And uh, I found her. And, yes, she was living in a school bus, an old church Sunday school bus. And on the side of the bus, it said, Jesus saves. No electricity, no water, no air conditioning. It's parked in a field. I, I went up. <laughs> she was outside. I walked up to her. Well, I, drove, I drove. We had to drive over the grass. There was no driveway. We just drove over the grass, went back to the bus. It was sitting back off the highway. Got out of the car, introduced myself. <clears throat> Let her tell me the story. Her husband bought the land, paid cash for it, told her, if anything ever happens to me, don't ever sell this land. This is for you and the children. Well, little did she know that one day he would drive off of that property and he got hit by a drunk driver right oh. in front of the land. Wow. And so he died right there on the highway in front of the property. This woman's in her, I'm guessing at that time, late 30s. She's got five kids. And they're all living in this bus. And I'm thinking, you know, every day there are people driving down this road on their way, on, well, on Sundays. Every Sunday, they're driving to go to church. And here's a widow with five kids in a church school bus with no electricity, no water. But they're going to church to learn about Jesus. Yes. And Jesus is right here in this bus. Jesus is over here in this bus. It says Jesus saves. But nobody could see her. They just drove by. Their eyes were blinded because they had to get to church on time. Because they were going to have a big church dinner that day. Or there was going to be a concert there, a gospel group, something. But they had to get to church. Didn't have time to stop. So I blurted out. I said, ma'am, I'm going to build a house for you. <laughs> I got in the car and Susan looked at me. She said, do you have any idea what you just said to that woman? <laughs> I, said, I said, I told her I'm going to help her get a house. And Susan said, no, you didn't say you're going to help her. You told her you're going to build a house. <laughs> I said, no, I said, I'm going to help her get a house. Susan said, you said I'm going to build a house for you. I said, well, she'll understand. I can't just go build a house for her. I'm going to help her get a house. Susan, that's not what you told her. That woman thinks you're going to get her a house. 
Well, let me tell you what the Lord heard. He heard me say, I'm going to build a house for you. Well, many months went by and I didn't act on it. And I'm, I was traveling at that time, going around the country uh, with this new ministry. Came back and uh, we started the radio program. And I'm trying to think, uh, we started late May, somewhere around, um, I'm going to say early August, late July, early August. I was still living in the home owned by TBN. I was renting it. And I got a call from TBN official and they said, Rick, uh, Dr. Crouch would like you to move out. He's got another employee who wants to move into that house. Well, he they allowed me to live there for a year after I quit working for TBN. I mean, they were very kind and gracious to me. And I said, sure. How soon? He goes, well, they like you to do it in 30 days. Well, I didn't have a lease. I couldn't. I just, okay, I'll do it. 30 days. Started looking for a house and couldn't find one. I'm praying. Lord, I, we've got 30 days and I, we're looking everywhere. And we just, every time we get there, that house is taken. And I heard him say, I'm not going to reveal your new house to you until you build that woman a house. Man, you got to. I heard him say it. And I said, that's not fair. I've only got 30 days. And he said, well, you better get busy. <laughs> <laughs> he said it. He said, you better get busy. So I got busy. I went on the radio the next day and I told everybody exactly what I just told you. Just the way I told it to you. I said, folks, I can't. The Lord has told me he's not going to let me have a house until I build a house for this woman. I got myself in a mess. I said it on the radio. Doc, if you look back and find the archives, you'll find me talking about it. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got myself in a mess. I promised this woman a house. And, and, you know, I didn't know God was going to take me that seriously about it. He told me I, he's not going to let me find my house until I built her house. Yes. Well, folks, <laughs> the people, our name back then wasn't True News. It was, it was America's Hope. And the donations poured in. And within weeks, we had about $100,000, which I was just stunned. I was absolutely stunned at what happened. And, uh, you know, I, I got to cut the story short. Uh, we, we bought a uh, double-wide home, a brand-new double-wide home, and got a good price on it, delivered it to her, um, set it up, put in a septic tank and a well, took her shopping, bought furniture and appliances and housewares and dishes and pots and pans and toys and pillows and sheets. And we bought everything. We spent all the money that was donated. And we gave that family a brand new home. It wasn't empty. It was a home filled with everything that they needed. I um, went back home and, uh, you know, 30 days was up. I had to move out and I still didn't have a house. We had all of our furniture in two moving trucks. 
And for two weeks, we drove around. <laughs> we really did. We're driving around like, like gypsies. I remember you telling me that story. <laughs> staying in different homes. I mean, staying in different places, hotels and such. And then finally, um, a, a friend who's, who's passed away, he's gone on with the Lord. He came up from Houston. He heard me talking about this on the radio at that time. And he came up and um, we had this little office in Granbury, Texas. This was, this was our original one. We were just leasing it, tiny little office. He walked across the street. There was a bed and breakfast in across the street. I didn't know he was doing this. He went across the street, told the owners my plight. They invited us to come over and stay in the bed and breakfast in. And my friend from Houston paid the bill. Wow. Um, the Lord opened up a house for us and a building. Within weeks, we we signed contracts to buy a, a an office building and a house. And I had no money, but I signed contracts because the Lord told me. I remember it was October of 98, or excuse me, October of 99. And the owner of the bed and breakfast and the couple, they later told my friend. They said, what you didn't know is that when you came over to talk to us. We were ready to go out of business. Our bed and breakfast in had, wow. we were just ready to sh shut it down. And ever since we put that preacher and his family in our bed and breakfast in, we haven't had a vacancy since. <clears throat> Mercy. Mercy. My friend was merciful to me. The bed and breakfast in was merciful. Everybody was blessed. They all found mercy. Yes. From the Lord. Then the Lord gave us mercy by leading us to a place for a new home. Yes. But it all began by showing mercy first. Yes. I had to show mercy first. Right if, now, if, there's some people getting hung up on that right now. Why? They're, they'll be they'll get hung up on that because they want the mercy first and then they'll show mercy mm -mm. mercy comes first you do it yes you have to show mercy before the lord shows you mercy he doesn't need mercy he's okay he's got everything together you need mercy right. you are going to do it his way see if I had refused to build that woman a house, I don't know what would have happened to me. And what would have happened to them? Don't know. But I, I don't want to find out on Judgment Day. I don't want to stand in front of the Lord and there's a widow and her five kids on Judgment Day. So everybody who donated received mercy. Yes. It wasn't my money. I didn't have $100,000 to give, but I'll tell you this, if I'd had $100,000 personally in my bank account, the Lord would have required me to, to use it. Yes. And then he would have shown mercy to me and multiplied that money many times. So 
mercy extends beyond mere material assistance to address spiritual needs. The merciful not only provide food and clothing to the needy, but also they, they work to en en enlighten others, to give them hope, to heal their spiritual ailments, to guide them away from sin and depression and hopelessness. Mercy includes empathy, generosity, forgiveness, admonishment of the mistakes, comforting and relieving others. It, exhibiting these qualities in your interactions with others reflects the mercy of God to them. I'm looking at my time. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to this. So there's a, there's a rule of reciprocity. It's a warning to all of us. And a blessing. Depends on which side of it you want to you stand. Yes. It can, it can harm you. It can bless you. The rule of reciprocity is this. Give to others and you will receive. Withhold from others and it will be withheld from you. Denying mercy to others will result in God denying mercy to you when you need it. I can tell you something. I have a problem with the number of homeless beggars in our cities and along our highway inter intersections. I look at all the businesses with help wanted signs, and I know that they can easily get a job. Yet I don't know their deep emotional mental problems. Yes. I don't know the details and the history of their lives. I don't know why they're out there on the street. I can tell you this, Susan and I typically don't give money, but we buy food for them. If somebody says I'm hungry, I'm not handing them money. I'll say, hey, just stay right here. I'll go over here and get you a meal. Proverbs 21, verse 13, whoever stops his ears at the cry of the poor, he will also cry out, but shall not be heard. That proverb softens my heart when I encounter beggars. Because I'd rather lose a dollar than lose a blessing. Yes. If the beggar misuses the money that I give him or her, that's their problem, not mine. My conscience is clear. Somebody said he or she was hungry. I gave them food. The reason they don't work a job is not my business. I just know the Bible says whenever you stop your ears at the cry of the poor and he cries out and you cry out, you will not be heard in heaven. I'm going to tell you uh, quickly. I'll tell you a story. I don't know. We got to wrap this up here in just a few minutes. Don't we, Doc? What yeah, do we got left? About two minutes. Oh, my. This happened uh, this past Thanksgiving. My sister and brother-in-law were visiting us from Maryland. And let's see, this would have happened on the, uh, I think, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And I was taking my sister and brother-in-law out to, they wanted to go out to the beach. So as we were driving by Walgreens, my sister said, hey, I got to get something from Walgreens. I said, okay. So I drove into Walgreens parking lot. And there on the pavement of the parking lot was this, woman lying on the pavement. 
maybe in her 60s. I thought, oh my, you know, I checked it. Like she's just there lying on the, pay, on the, on the parking lot. I went into the store, got what my sister needed. I said to the clerk, there's a woman out there in the parking lot. And they didn't say anything. I went back out. We went up to the woman. I said, ma'am, what is wrong? And she said, my, my walker broke. I can't get up. I can't walk. I said, how long have you been here? She said, a long time. Doc, how many people drove past her? Yes. Uh, her walker broke and she was on the pavement and people drove past her. She was homeless. She was a veteran. She had served in the U.S. Air Force. She was a veteran. I didn't ask her, man, why are you in this mess? She was, uh, I, I just tell you, she, she, she had urinated herself on the pavement. She said, I couldn't get up. I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry. She was a very, very big woman. It took me and my brother-in-law to help her up, get her up on her feet. And she was bent over. She couldn't stand up straight. And I put her in her in my car and we took her, we took her down to a, a, a local hotel and I, I checked her in, paid for a couple of nights for, to get her off the street. I usually don't tell people what things like I do like this. I don't think you should be, you know, advertising it. But I'm trying to show you that these things are in front of us all the time. Yes, the opportunities are there constantly. I could have drove past her and said, oh, my, that's horrible, like everybody else. But my spirit, my conscience wouldn't allow me to do it. Did I do it to get a blessing? No, I did because God said, look at this woman. She's in great need. But do I know that God saw that I did it? Yes. Do I know that God will do something in my life? Yes. There may be a time that I'm down, not physically, but in other ways. And God will send somebody to lift me up. I asked the Lord one time years ago, I said, Lord, I look back over my life and I see things that I did wrong. I deserve punishment. I deserve chastisement. And you didn't do anything. And he said, because you show mercy to people, I showed mercy to you. Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How do we cut off God's mercy to us? By denying mercy to others. Amen. I've got more to teach, but we're out of time. I'll pick this up maybe tomorrow. If not, we'll move on to the next verse. All right, Rick. Great teaching today, and it really challenges us to continue to show mercy, uh, and we have opportunities every day to do it. 
don't don't ignore the opportunity to show mercy today. Uh, say thank you to uh, the 19 countries that checked in with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Morning Man is heard live each weekday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time on faithandvalues.com. So if you're listening at another time, please come and join us live uh, weekday mornings. We'd love to have you on Faith and Values. You can also listen to previous editions of Morning Manna, True News, and other content that we produce. Do you want me to continue with this tomorrow or move on? If you're asking me, let's continue. Okay. Because I didn't, I didn't get to all of it. Okay. Well, let's I didn't get to all of it. There's, there's more on Mercy. All right. Okay. All right. Well, okay. we'll see you on the next we'll morning, Manna, tomorrow morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Time. God bless you. We love you.